Yeah. Yes, I am. You cut me, I'll bleed orange. Burnt orange. Yeah, my wife will tell you, that fourth quarter, they thought they were going to have to take me to the ER. I thought I was going to have a stroke. Wish they'd do to everybody what they did to Oklahoma and just, you know. We had talked the last time that both classes were combined together. We had talked about uh, the judgment. We had talked about, we had, talked, we had not talked about the judgment, sorry. We had talked about the coming of Christ. And we know that the, with the coming of Christ, we know that every question is answered but the when. So I thought it only fair or correct that when we got together today, as I knew we were going to be a combined class, when Neil sent me a text this morning that he was stranded in Charlotte, that we talk about the judgment day. That's really the last piece. We know what's going to happen when Christ comes. We know what's going to happen to the earth when Christ comes. But we don't know or sometimes don't talk about the judgment day and what's going to happen to to each one of us. And I've had people in the past remark to me that, well, you know, you really probably shouldn't talk about the judgment day. That's not not within the purview of, of something that we should talk about. Well, if you turn to Acts 24, verse 25... Paul reasoned with Felix of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And so it is only right, it is only fair to all of us that we know what's coming. That we know how the Lord will return. We've talked about that part. book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us that he's going to return. We've talked about that at length. But we know that when Paul talked to Felix about that, Felix did something that Paul thought it was worthy of taking note of. Paul, uh, Felix trembled. And he said, go away for a season and I will call for you when it's convenient for me. If there was one scripture that keeps repeating itself over and over again with regard to the judgment day, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And we will reference that throughout this lesson this morning. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that which they have done, whether it be good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. The times of this ignorance God winked at. But now he commands every man everywhere to repent, for he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who he has ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to all men in that he has raised him from the dead. And so we see with Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, the validity of the judgment tied to the resurrection of Christ. We can trace genealogies in Jude 1 from Adam to Seth, from Enos to Canaan to Mahaliel to Jared to Enoch to Methuselah and through Noah. Well, what will happen? We've talked in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the coming of the Lord. And so just as a brief review, we will have seen or you will witness with your own eyes the coming of our Savior with his holy angels. Matthew 25, verse 31 and 32 tells us, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, 
and all of the holy angels with him. And he will sit upon his throne of glory, and before him will be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another as a, she- as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We found in 1 Thessalonians 4 that there would be a trump. There would be the shout of the archangel. There would be the voice. And there would be that trumpet. And so at the end of all that, Paul says to comfort one another with these words. And so I will have experienced and you will also have experienced the beautiful and the wonderful resurrection if you're dead or the translation if you still remain to meet him in the air. You will also have witnessed the destruction of the entire universal system. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 tells us, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, and the earth and all the works in it will be burned up. But what will happen after that? We will face judgment. You and I, everyone that has ever lived on this ball flying through the universe, will stand before our judge, because he won't be our savior anymore. At this point in time, he would be our judge. But who will be there? We won't be alone. The Bible tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah will be there. Matthew 10, verse 15. Matthew 11:22 tells us that Tyre and Sidon will be there. The men of Nineveh, Matthew 12:41. And again to Acts 17, he'll judge the world. Everyone will be there. 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 and 2. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And finally in the book of Revelation chapter 20 verse 12. I saw the dead Small and great. Stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the book according to their works. The weather will not be too bad. It won't be too windy outside. Your job will not keep you from being there. If you're sick, that won't keep you from being at the judgment. We will not be there alone. But in a certain sense, we will be there alone. You will stand before your Savior, now your judge. You will stand there alone. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12 tell us, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you set not your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess to God. So then, verse 12, every one of us shall give an account to himself to God. We must all appear. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.12, the, the anchor scripture for all of this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one of us. So we will not be there alone, but we will be alone. And in that moment, you will face Jesus Christ. John 5.22 tells us that the Father judges no man, 
but he's committed all judgment to the Son. He's given authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man, John 5:27. And the judgment that he meets out to each one of us will be just. I can of mine own self do nothing, Jesus said. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You won't be able to deceive Jesus at the judgment seat. The woman at the well couldn't deceive him. Ananias and Sapphira could not deceive him. And you will not be able to deceive him either. He's now our Savior at this moment in time. But in that moment, he'll be your judge. Now we believe, not because of your sayings, but we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, John 4.42. As I stand before my Lord in judgment, as you stand before the Lord in judgment, you will stand there anxiously awaiting the opening of the books. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Hebrews 12.22 tells us to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, to those whose names are written in heaven. So speak ye and so do ye, that ye shall be judged by the law of liberty. James 2.12 Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. The words that I have spoken, the same will judge you in the end. Romans 2.16 promises in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to this gospel. The books will be opened. The book will be opened of your life and your life will be an open storybook. Remember the three parables that Jesus talked about in Matthew 25. The parables of the virgins, the talents, and the separation of the sheep and the goats. In every case, there was something that had been done. And something that had been left undone. We talked about this last time we were together. There are three things that I know of that God will judge according to the scriptures. Romans 2.16 tells me that he will judge the secrets of men. Every secret thing that you've done that no one else knows about, God will judge. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says that he will bring every secret work, whether it be good or whether it be evil, We've already quoted 2 Corinthians 5.10. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive the things done in the body according to whatever you have done, whether it be good or evil. And finally, Matthew 12.36, But I say unto you, the Lord said, Every idle word that you speak, you will give an account of on the day of judgment. At that moment in time, when your life and mine become open storybooks, we will either hear words of commendation or words of condemnation. Look at Matthew 25, verses 24 and verse 41, both of those in Matthew 25. We'll read 24 first, and then we'll read 41. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then verse 41, then, he, then shall he say unto those on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Notice the dichotomy there between those two judgments. Words of commendation, words of condemnation. Come, depart. Ye blessed of my Father, ye cursed. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to depart into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Words of commendation. Words of condemnation. And finally, I will either at that moment in time, and you will in that moment of time, either plead or praise. Revelation 6.16 And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then it'll be over. You will become, as I will, a part of an eternal separation. Those on the right hand, those on the left. And so if we look back at Acts 24 25, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment with this evil, evil ruler. He reasoned with him of judgment to come. Everyone that we come in contact with should know what is to come. They should know how to live in this life. They should know how to live for their Savior. They should know how to obey their Savior. He reasoned with Felix about righteousness to a man of unparalleled evil. He reasoned with a man of temperance who was one of the most intemperate men History ever records. And he reasoned with him about judgment to come. Question, you certainly may. I didn't know if it was proper, so I asked The secret things? Mm-hmm. Secret certainly, that's in it. Those sins are forgiven. But if there are secret things that someone has done that there's not been forgiveness asked for, the blood of Christ continually cleanses us. It's, a, it's an action verb. The blood of Christ continually cleanses us. So if we're constant in prayer, if we're constant in our appeals to God for ourselves and on behalf of others, if we're praying for ourselves especially to forgive the sins that I've committed today, both knowing and unknowing, then those sins, those sins will be forgiven. Certainly. Certainly we hope that. But here he's talking about secret things. He's talking about things that, that you and I have done when no one else is around. Both good and bad. So when you spoke to someone about Jesus and no one else in, in, in the congregation even knew about it. But you were out there speaking to someone. You were having a Bible study with someone. Those secret things that happened just between you and this person and God. Those things, those things will be judged on. Just as secret things that you've done that violate God's will. You'll be judged on those if you, if you don't ask you don't ask forgiveness, but prayer is, you know, prayer is a daily thing for us. You know, it's a, it's an, I mean, sometimes it's an hourly thing. I mean, you know, I, you know, between now here and, and getting home, I got to drive out on the roads in this town with, you know, a lot of people who are just not real good drivers, and I'm in constant prayer, both for myself and for them. David, Doc, I'm sorry, Doc. No, not for God, but that's the secret things are the ones that other people don't know about. Is if I wasn't clear on that. Hopefully the, re- the ones who are ready. Yeah. So. Right. And grace, and grace, covers, grace covers a lot of this also. You know, right. Yeah. 
I've heard the analogy used, and I think it's a good one. Uh, it, it's, like, it's like being in court. And you have the devil who is the prosecutor. And he's going to bring up everything that you've ever done. And Jesus is your attorney. Yeah. No, he's not going to be there, but I'm saying that's just as an example. Sometimes people talk about that. Right. Well, he brought he brought accusation. He brought accusation. He brought accusation against Job. Those of you who are studying Job, he brought accusation against Job, and I would expect he'd do the same. He would do the same thing. Yeah. Well, this has a this also has a lot to do with with people. You know, we hear about there's the parable of the the workers that are paid who come to work and they work all day, and then someone comes to work five minutes till quitting time and they get hired and they get the same reward. So, you know, no matter no matter how long you've been a Christian, you know, you're, you're, what you've done, whether you've been a Christian just for a short period of time or a Christian for a long period of time, you know, those, I think those are the works. And, I, you know, I don't know if he's talking about the least in the kingdom of heaven being, you know, someone who has not been a Christian very long but has been very faithful. That's, that's, what, it tends, that's what it tends to tell me. But, you know, that's, you know that's, that, I think that was the reason for that parable. Yeah, see, I don't know. You know, God doesn't, God doesn't reveal everything to us, but... Well, I mean, I just use I just use those three scriptures to to bulwark the, you know, the fact that those are the things that the Bible has said we're going to be we're going to be judged on good works, whether they're good or evil. So when you did something or you didn't do something, so that person you had a chance to talk to in the grocery store, that person you had a chance to to talk about to the gospel. What's our response? What's our responsibility to these people outside the door or the people who are not Christians? What's our responsibility? What is our responsibility? What's your responsibility as a Christian? To talk to as many people as you know. Yeah. Talk the talk and walk the walk. Talk the talk and walk the walk. you got to walk the walk. But once you've talked that talk and they reject you, what happens? Do you keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing? No. You dust, the, you dust yourself off and you move on. You've completed your obligation. God's not going to hold you responsible for dragging somebody down the aisle and tossing them in the tank. That's not your job. Yes, sir. Sure. Right. Of all those scatterings, how many of them were, of the, the number of scatterings, how many of them were successful? Some fell on good ground. Some fell on the rocky ground. Some fell on... Other parts of the ground didn't grow, burned up, fell, fell away shortly thereafter. But only one of those scatterings fell on good ground. So your odds are not good. But you've got to keep sowing. That's, that's the, that's the take-home message. But you've talked to people, and we've all dealt with people. You talk to them in one Bible session, and they are so curious about learning more, that's, that's the good ground. You talk to them about Jesus, and they're like, I, they're like a plant that needs water. They just want more and more and more. And those are the people that are going to come and be, get baptized and live the Christian life and be faithful Christians. But nine times out of ten, the discouragement sets in when you talk to people and you're constantly rejected. You're constantly told that, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I had someone tell me one time, I don't want to be a part of any religion that has anything to do with blood. And I said, well, you know. All I can tell you is that blood bought you. 
That blood paid for you. And you'll pay for your sins if you don't take advantage of that blood that paid for you. You'll pay for your own sins. Mike, did you have something? That's not really right. the way to judge the case. Right. It's kind of like the minority of Well, I've often made the comment there are a lot of things, and maybe you have too, there are a lot of things in this life I don't understand that God hasn't given us the, the purview to understand. And so I have sometimes commented, I have a lot of questions for God on the judgment day. Well, it's not going to be a question and answer period. It, there's not going to be questions and answers. There's not going to be open discussion. You know, you don't need to ask. You'll know. Yeah. And if you're dead, according to Luke 16, you'll already know. Well, I think that's also vindication. The, the scripture that we read that talks about every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Think about all of the evil people in the world that have ever existed who didn't obey God according to his plan of salvation. On the day of judgment, that's vindication. That's the vindication for Christians. That's the vindication. And we talk in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, when we get, we get ready to start here, we're going to talk a lot about God's vindication. And we're going to talk about his vengeance and the types of it. There's human vengeance and then there's God's vengeance. And that's, those are two different kinds of, those are two different types of vengeance. And so, you know, it's, it's, laid out, it's laid out pretty clearly in Scripture what will happen, how it will happen, what will be the end result? Um, does anyone have questions? Because I want everyone to be clear from the, the return of the Lord to, the, to being at the judgment bar and, and entering that final separation. You know, there should not be any questions. And if the world is going to be judged like that, where do we, where, where do we appear? That's, what, that's the question Peter asked. You know, what sort of lives should we be leading in view of what we know is going to happen. What type of lives should we be living? Well, I don't think we do either. I think I think we should have confidence. We approach we approach the throne. How do we approach the throne? What does Hebrew writer tells us? We approach it how? We approach it boldly. That's not arrogance. That's confidence. We have hope. That's the anchor of the soul. What's faith? What is faith? The evidence of things not seen. It's belief. It's, it, it's, it's belief that there are things in here that we don't understand. I cannot conceptualize of my, in my own feeble mind, I cannot conceptualize of how God spoke the universe into, crea- in, into being. I cannot conceptualize, I'm sorry, I cannot wrap my arm around the fact that he said, let there be light, and light was. Yes, ma'am. I think all of us, though, have, I, I'm not talking about stopping everyone on, on the frozen food aisle as you're going to get your chicken tenders. And, you know, I'm not talking about stopping everybody on that aisle and saying, have you heard about Jesus? Okay, that has happened, to, that has happened with me on more than one occasion when I've been over in, in Memphis at the, at the Spiritual Sword Lectureships. I was with a preacher, just happenstance, we were on the same elevator, and this man was, quote-unquote, a great gospel preacher. If I mentioned his name, everyone would know it. And he spoke to every person in ele- that elevator as we were going from the first floor up to the 12th floor. He spoke to every person in that, in that elevator. Have you heard about, have you heard, can I tell you about Jesus? And I was, I was embarrassed. He was speaking to strangers. And I wasn't, I wasn't old, an, an older person. I was fairly young. 
And I was, em- I was embarrassed to my shame. I was embarrassed that this man would just start talking to people about Jesus. Those lost opportunities. Those are lost opportunities to bring someone to Christ. Dwight? Sure. Well, but you can talk to a lot of people at that point. You can... Right, right. But it's opportunities, it's opportunities presented. That opportunity that's presented to you that you pass on. For whatever reason. Yeah, you know, and there's yeah, there's that balance. There's that there's that balance that you have to walk. Right, right. But I'm talking about lost opportunities, opportunities that were presented to you that you did not take advantage of. Now I'm not saying talk to everybody on the street, and and, and that's that's not what I'm saying. If you have the opportunity to do that, well, maybe you should if it's the opportunities presented to you. But we're all presented with opportunities. You know, sometimes you, you may be going over the peaches and trying to figure out what, you know, peaches are the best or thumping a, a thumping a melon or something. And, you know, you have an opportunity. Someone starts a conversation with you. You know, it, it, you ha- you're presented with an opportunity. We all are presented with an opportunity. Not every day. But we all have opportunities to talk to, talk to people about Jesus. So no questions? Can't believe I was I, I covered this subject so well. As no. All right, let's open our Bibles then to Second Thessalonians. We're going to begin there today. In the short amount of time that we have left, we'll talk uh, we'll talk just about a, a little bit about this. Again, as with First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians is written at about 50 51 A.D. We know the writer is we know the writer is uh, is Paul. Um, all the, the early church fathers from Arrhenius to uh, many of the other church fathers attribute that, attribute that to him. There's, there's absolutely no doubt with the tense and, and the, way that, uh, the way that he writes or has someone writing for him. Um, 5051 AD is the, are the parameters for the writing of this book. It is the second book. Remember, 1 Thessalonians was the very first book that Paul wrote. And so he talks about a lot of things. You'll notice in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians there's not the... Uh, there, there's not the formal call that Paul, an apostle of Christ. He doesn't say that. He uses the three people, or the other two people, the three of them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. This is a church that he has written to about six months, uh, just a few, I won't even say six months, just a few months later after he wrote First Thessalonians, he wrote Second Thessalonians to them. Because some things had arisen, that people were still unclear of this business about First Thessalonians. They were worried about the dead and how the dead would be treated at the resurrection, and they didn't understand that. So Paul clarifies that in chapter four about how the dead are going to be treated. They're going to be the first ones to rise. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who remain, those of us who are still uh, ambulatory in whatever ma- in whatever fashion, uh, will will go up, will go up second. We'll be caught up uh, to meet him in the air. But there still seemed to be either a rumor going around or something that someone had misinterpreted that Paul said, well, maybe we need to talk about this in a little greater detail, uh, talk about some other things. And then there are chapters on the coming, there's a coming apostasy. And, you know, we're going to get into that all as part of uh, our part of our conversation. So um, he commends them in the opening verses. Uh, He expresses sympathy for them, but then he he gives a note of alarm uh, that, uh, that some of them have been hearing these things that are going around, whether it's people in the church. Remember, those, there were those who thought the Lord was coming back soon, so they quit their jobs, and they're just hanging out waiting for the Lord to come back. Well, that's what he told them not to do that. He said, you keep, you keep working. 
you keep working, these things are going to happen when they happen, and we don't know, we don't know when, it, when it is. Uh, some thought that the Lord was coming back really soon. There were some, according to uh, some of the, some of the uh, early church fathers that wrote, uh, that had said that the church at Thessalonica was beset by people who had said the Lord had already come back. And they were concerned that they'd missed something. And so Paul writes this second book, uh, the second letter to the, Thessalon- the, the church at Thessalonica, um, about these about these things. So we begin at verse 1. Paul and Silas and Timothy, same three actors that were in uh, 1 Thessalonians, so it's the same group. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonica, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the exact same opening as in 1 Thessalonians with the exception that he now inserts the word our Father. And so he wants to He wants to make sure that the church understands that God our Father is the reason that they're there and he's the reason for the grace and the peace um, that they have. We are obligated always to thank God for you, brothers, as it is proper because your faith grows abundantly and your love for one another abounds. Who wouldn't want someone to say that about this congregation? And Paul is... He's effusive in his, in his commendation to this congregation, both in the, first, in the first book and in the second book. He's very complimentary of this congregation. He loves this congregation. This is a congregation that, has, that will remain near and dear to his heart uh, through the years. And if you notice, if you go back to the last chapter of, uh, last chapter of, of 1 Thessalonians, um, notice he puts them on verse 27 of chapter 5. He puts them under oath. That's the original Greek translation. In other words, it's the strongest, it's the strongest recommendation that an apostle can make. He puts them under oath. He says, I am putting you under oath before the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers. So as we're aware these, these letters that Paul and Peter and James and others wrote, these letters made their way to the various congregations, and that's what you hear read from the pulpit. They didn't have a Bible so that they could do what, what, uh, what we did this morning in our lesson on you know, walking the walk and talking the talk. He had lots of scriptures that he was using. He had Ezekiel. He had all these. They didn't have a Bible. They were using these letters, and they had the, they had the, the Old Testament that they, that they would use. But mostly, it was reading these letters to the congregation. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it reads just like a sermon. It reads just like a sermon. The book of Hebrews, I can, I can hear it in my mind, someone standing in the pulpit and reading the book of Hebrews. And in fact, on some occasions, I have actually heard preachers stand in the pulpit and just read the book. Because that's what Paul enjoined them to do. He kept them under oath. You read this book to the brothers and the sisters in Christ when you go to these various places. So he's very, he's very, he's very enthusiastic about this group, this congregation. Their faith grows abundantly. In the first Thessalonians, he talked about the fact that there are, the other, there are those in other cities, there are those in other regions of the world that have heard about you. There are those within the city of Thessalonica that say this is a very strong congregation. We have there's a lot of loving brothers, a lot of loving Christians there. Uh, and so he continues this. We're obligated to thank you. Your faith grows abundantly and your love for one another abounds. We ourselves boast about you among God's congregations. Now, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to travel to other congregations. And when they find out you're from Lehman Avenue, usually they're... Well, they made that bell extra loud just for me. I know they did that. It's just because I, I miss it every time. But when you go somewhere else and you hear or so they hear that you belong to Lehman Avenue, 
we're well known among the brethren. I go to Pikeville on occasion. I'll go over to Eastern Kentucky in some locations. I'll go to Paducah and other locations. And when I go to church on Wednesday night, if I'm traveling out of town for those on those nights, if I go to those congregations and they greet me and, and I tell them I, I worship at Lehman Avenue, oh that we know where we know Lehman Avenue. This can be said about this can be said about us. And that's to our credit. That's not that we should boast. Not saying that. But when others talk good about you, when others say good things about you, you know you're doing something, you know you're doing something well. We ourselves boast about you among God's congregations because of your patient endurance and faithfulness and all of your persecutions and troubles. So despite they were despite the fact that they were a church that he loved, they were still going through persecution. There were still Judaizing teachers out there. There were still those who were Gentiles who were persecuting them. Remember these people, for the most part, Christians in the first century were what? Were they all, were they all wealthy? Were they all really rich? What were most of them? Most of them were, poor. Most of them were slaves. This is, why, this is why Paul and other writers use being a Christian and being a slave to Christ, a servant to Christ. This was something they could identify with. And there are some people that well, I don't, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to be anybody. I don't want to be anybody's slave. I don't want to be anybody's servant. Well, you're not, you're not going to do real well in heaven, because we're, we're all slaves. We're slaves to Christ. We're servants of Christ. We do, his, we do His bidding. We do what He tells us to do when He tells us to do it, how He wants us to do it. That's the definition of someone who's a servant. And so He says. We ourselves boast about you among God's congregations because of your patient endurance and faithfulness and all of your persecution and trouble. So they were still experiencing trouble. They talk about the, he talks about this comfort uh, in their afflictions. They're, they're being persecuted. He doesn't delineate to the church what their persecutions are. Why? Because they know what they're enduring on a daily basis as far as persecutions. Persecutions from without primarily, but also persecution from where? From within. Because there still may be those individuals who are still holding on to maybe some Jewish customs. There may be some Gentiles holding on to some, some of those customs. And so he begins then to talk about the victory in Christ. These are evidences of God's righteous judgment that you may be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. There is a payoff at the end of the road. You're not, you're not living this life to have nothing at the end of the road. You know, some, some people say, you know, well, they don't believe there's, uh, they don't believe there's a hereafter. That when you're dead, uh, you're dead like Rover, you're dead all over. And nothing happens after that. And there are others who talk about, and we'll talk about it next week, we're going to talk about annihilationists. Those who don't believe in eternal punishment, they just believe you're going to be tortured for a little while, and then it's all going to be over with. Well, that's not, that's not what the Bible says. That's, that's not biblical. So, he continues to talk to them. He continues to repeat a lot of the things that he said in 1 Thessalonians about the persecutions and the troubles that are both within and without of the church there at Thessalonica. And that these persecutions are evidences of God's righteous judgment. Now, if you look back at Job, those of you who are in the class studying Job, Job was allowed, or Job was tempted God allowed Satan to tempt Job. He talks about the hedge that's around him. And he says, well, if you take that away, he'll curse your name. Well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not. And so this is, this is what we are, we, the, these evidences, this persecution, how you come through this persecution, all who live godly in Christ Jesus, what? 
may, might, shall, shall suffer persecution. And I've said this a thousand times over the years that I've taught this class. If you're not being persecuted of Christ, you're not doing something right. And that goes back to this talking about people, talking to people about Christ. Does it embarrass you? Do they curse at you? Do, are you suffering? Are you suffering for Christ? Are you, are you suffering persecution in the name of Christ because of something that you're doing for Jesus? That's this righteous, that's this, this judgment, this righteous judgment that you may be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. If you're not suffering for Jesus, something's wrong with your life. And I'm not suffering for Jesus as much as I should be. And I wonder if all of us are. That's that man in the, in the mirror moment. So next week, we're going to talk about something that's very controversial. This business about, well, what about these folks? Because he says he's going to punish those who know not God. Well, wait a minute now. How can God punish people who don't even know that he exists or have never heard the word of God? How can he punish those people? We're going to talk about that next week. Thank you.